0: Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, March the 27th, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with Professor Caritha Mitchell of Ohio State University. We'll be talking about critical thinking and the art of thinking differently, as well as how men can liberate themselves from toxic masculinity. All of that, coming up next.
1: When you use this same-sex marriage example, Omar, you open up another can of worms. Because part of what we cannot neglect is that the whole reason why we even have a movement around same-sex marriage is because we have accepted the idea in this incredibly unjust society of American culture that you should have certain rights and benefits simply because you're married, simply because we put monogamy and marriage on a pedestal. So just the fact that you're a human being is not a good enough reason to have health care omar you're gonna have more opportunities for health care if you're married to somebody right like i mean instead of building a society where just being an individual means that you have certain rights we've built a society that gives more rights to those who are in monogamous marriages Mm. And so when we make a movement for same sex marriage, what we're saying is they have these tax breaks. I want these tax breaks. I should have those tax breaks. And they're absolutely right. And I am definitely a proponent of same sex marriage. But if we're thinking about critical thinking, which we are today, Omar, what I would encourage us to do is say, huh, what gets left untouched? What gets left untouched is the idea that some people should have more rights and they should have more rights simply because they're in a monogamous relationship that's recognized by the by the nation state.
0: The clip that you just heard, dear listener, was a portion of the conversation I had to edit out, and I wanted to play that clip in isolation and explain it in context before you get to listen to the conversation with Professor Caritha Mitchell. I had during the course of the episode, which you won't hear, this portion that I am about to refer to asked about same-sex marriage and the terminology that our society uses. And my whole argument was, we should just use the term marriage and make it an all-encompassing thing rather than say same-sex marriage. And I said, the reason why I think that is that nobody walks around saying, I just got same-sex married. No one walks around saying, I just got straight married. No straight person says that. So I think that for that reason, you should have marriage as it is, and anyone who wants to get married, whether they want to get married to someone of the same gender or of a different gender, should be allowed to marry. And, you know, at the moment, we have that in the United States, for example. I guess my whole point, overarchingly, was that I think that we stigmatize things. And I think Professor Mitchell, what she was saying um, prior to the clip that you heard was that it's important to use the term same-sex marriage and also refer to straightness to make sure that there is an identifier in society that gives us the point of contextual reference so that we always know which group is the group that's doing the dominating or the preferring, which group is the preferred group versus the group that's not. And so the professor was talking about that previous to the clip that you just heard and that it was always important to point out whiteness because that's the silent category that is presumed to be the normalizing thing that then points at the otherness that that whiteness creates. And so that's the contextual framework. And after her explanation of why the term same-sex marriage is a term she uses in an everyday parlance, the clip that you just heard was the portion where she said, Well, you know, you open up a whole can of worms with same-sex marriage because really what you have to start looking at is marriage itself and how that's fashioned in Western culture and United States culture. And the organizing principle being, why should it be about being in a monogamous relationship? You should be able to get benefits as a human being. There shouldn't have to be categories of relationship that you have to belong to in order to get benefits from the state. And so I want to just place that in its full context. And I do hope, dear listener, that by me doing that and also with the clip itself, you get that rounded context. I really wanted to keep that clip that you just heard in the flow of the conversation. But... I felt that it would be better because of the interest of time. And we spoke for almost two hours, the professor and I. And this is going to be a roughly one hour and 10 minute um, exploration conversation that we had. And we spoke for almost two hours. So I really did have to edit down a lot of different things. But I just wanted to keep that clip because I think that clip is so important. As is everything else that you will hear coming up in the conversation with Professor Karitha Mitchell right after this. (music) you <music> Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast with yours truly, Omar Moore here. And of course, you know that this is the podcast where you are invited to think differently. We're going to be talking today about critical thinking, thinking differently. And also, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation as well about men and how they can liberate themselves from toxic masculinity. And I want to introduce to you the person that... I would not have, listen, there's no other person I would really want to have this conversation with than what I, who I regard and respect as one of the foremost intellectuals in this country. She really is, Caritha Mitchell, and I will introduce her to you right now, dear listener. Caritha Mitchell is a literary historian, a cultural critic, and she also is a professor of English at the Ohio State University, and <laughs> by the way, <laughs> she also has a book that she wrote called Living with Lynching, and I should add to that that her edition of the first ever book-length autobiography of a formerly enslaved African-American woman named Harriet Jacobs is entitled Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, 1861. That is going to be published in June of this year, so please be sure to run out and get your copy of that. I'm going to buy at least two copies of this book. Uh, I, I kid you not. And I also want to point out that Caritha Mitchell's public commentaries can be found in such places as Time Magazine and on CNN and Good Morning America as well. And I should point out that her book from Slave Cabins to the White House was named one of the best books of 2020 that it was named best book of 2020 by such uh, publications as Ms magazine and Black Perspectives and by the way on Twitter she goes by the handle Prof Corey P R O F K O R I What a wonderful honor it is to have uh, the one, the only Professor Caritha Mitchell here with us today on the Political Daily Podcast. Caritha, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Omar. It is an absolute delight to be with you today. Thank you very
0: much. Indeed. It's so, I, I have to say, there's no, as I said before, no other person I would want to have a conversation like this with. Um, and, and I'm so glad that you are here to have this conversation with us today. And, um, we're going to talk about critical thinking, as I said, and, um, I think it's always a good idea, Caritha, to, and I do hope you're well. I don't know if I asked how I, I just hope you're well and everything's going well for you. Thank you. Um, It's very important we have these conversations to talk and define what we're talking about. Um, It may be apparent to listeners that, you know, what the definitions are, but it's always good to explain what they are. So I do want to start by asking you what critical thinking is and also how we can apply critical thinking in a society like this one, where there's such a lot of instantaneous messaging being thrown at us where there is such an aspect of really not being able to think anymore. Everything is so truncated. We have a short attention span culture. And all of these kinds of entities, these issues of, you know, truncated thought and automation, how do we apply, I guess my question is, critical thinking on a day-to-day basis in a world like that, in a soundbite culture?
1: Oh, what a beautiful question, Um, and a really, really important question. And I guess I would start by saying that I would define critical thinking as rigorous thinking, um, as really taking the time to consider what you're being offered, rather than simply accept what you're being offered. And I would say that part of what's so powerful about the way that you framed it is to say, right, like you're, you're bringing to our attention, we are in a culture that's soundbite culture, and that's designed for you to simply take something and run. And in a culture like that, I think part of what allows us to think critically is to actually be very aware of power dynamics. And American culture actually doesn't want us to think ever about power dynamics, because the way that dominant discourse and practice is set up, when and when I say dominant discourse and practice, I just mean the dominant words and deeds, the most common words and deeds. Whatever is most commonly said and done is how you know what kind of culture you're in, right? So because we're in a racist culture, for example, then part of what dominant discourse and practice does, what the most common words and deeds do is they encourage you to act as if we're only talking about race when we talk about people of color and whenever everything is white then supposedly that's not about race and so you never even mark the whiteness right so that's how we have a dominant um cultural conversation in which people act as if whiteness isn't a race and people act as if let's say in the american education system, right? As I'm going through the American education system and I have white teachers overwhelmingly who are teaching me nothing but white authored texts, I'm not supposed to think that's about race. I'm not even supposed to notice it's all white. So what's powerful to me, Omar, about how you're framing it is How can I, as I'm going through this culture that only wants me to notice certain things and not notice other things, the things that I'm not supposed to notice are the things I'm supposed to just think are natural and right. So when everything is white, that's just natural and right, Omar. It's only when somebody like me and you shows up that maybe there's something racial going on, (laughs) right? Right. So to my mind, the question of critical thinking is most powerful when we start to recognize that the only way you can ever think critically or rigorously is if you're willing to notice that which you are encouraged to think is simply natural and right. So part of another way I might put that is to say, right, because your question was, How do we exercise this in our everyday lives? How do we think more rigorously and not just accept it, right? Right. So for my money, if I am willing to acknowledge power dynamics, what are the power dynamics that benefit when I think that whiteness simply is simply is neutral, simply is a benign tradition, who benefits when I think that it just is and I don't think that it is unjustly advantaged? Obviously a racist system benefits. Same thing with sexism or heterosexism. Who benefits when I only think questions of sexuality are at play when queer people show up? When it's all straight people then I'm just supposed to think that's natural and right. So again, in your everyday life, the way that you can think more critically is if you're willing to think about what are the power dynamics? Who benefits from me not questioning certain things? And so how can I get in the practice of questioning what is sold to me in this unequal society as natural and right? Because that's the last thing I'll say, Omar. It would be one thing if we weren't in a society that constantly made a hierarchy, that constantly said these people should be on the bottom at all times. And whenever they rise, something is going wrong. So we ought to put something in check. It would be one thing if that weren't the society we're living in. But because we live in a society that loves inequity more than it loves anything else, mm. then we need to pay attention to what those power dynamics are that we are Encourage not to notice. To my mind, that is the key to critical thinking is being willing to look at the power dynamics.
0: And what you've just said struck a chord of me and I believe um, there are a lot of listeners who are listening who will also feel a similar striking of a chord because you've laid it out and it's very clear the way you've laid it out. Um, The thing, Caritha, that I think can become a challenge is when you have all of these things that place a buffer between our thought and the way we should be thinking. For example, advertising, just the cultural standards, the people we see. And again, you've talked about that, but there's a lot of blockage that comes in between what you've said and what you've laid out and what we see as people. And there's And when I say blockage, what I really mean is distraction. Mm-hmm. Madison Avenue, Wall Street, the broadcasting industry, the corporate news media, which is overwhelmingly white and controlled by white men, or and, mm-hmm. and straight, and all those things. And so, that's part of a challenge as well. That I don't know if you'd like to speak about that a little bit as well, because these are all these messages coming at us that do identify everything that you're speaking about. Yet those messages are so predominant and so pervasive, especially now in this culture with social media, that it can be quite overwhelming. And I wanted, if you didn't mind, uh, Karif, to speak a bit about that and what our challenges in dealing with
1: all that blockage
0: and distraction.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> What's so important to understand, Omar, is that those buffers, blockages, distractions are very purposeful. So it helps us to know that none of that is an accident. We are bombarded for the purpose of being convinced that the order of things is natural and right. I don't even notice the whiteness. I don't notice the straightness. I don't notice the cisgenderness, right? I'm just supposed to accept it as natural and right. And how do you achieve that? You bombard me with so many messages that because I'm human, I'm bound to internalize some of them. So I think what's powerful to understand about what you've laid on the table, Omar, is that I'm a real believer in remembering that we are human. It it makes sense that some of these things we have internalized. But the other thing that's beautiful about being human is that we can think and we can think about our thinking. That's one of the most important distinctions, right, in terms of the animal kingdom, that human beings have the capability of not just thinking but also thinking about their thinking because they have a prefrontal cortex. So The distraction that you're talking about is precisely why I'm so invested in my um, field of study, which is literature, and I'm an English professor. And what that means to me is that I'm interested not just in literature and how it helps us to see culture and how literature shapes culture. But I'm also interested in discourses and practices more generally. So the whole reason I'm interested in what I'm interested in is because of what you have said, Omar, <laughs> because the things that we're bombarded with, those messages we're bombarded with, have a lot of power. And if we can recognize the power of those discourses and practices, then we can not only be kind and gentle with ourselves for internalizing some of this BS, but we can also take the control that we have to unlearn some of this stuff. It will never be automatic, right? Just because I am a Black woman does not mean that all of the anti-Blackness bounces off my skin. (laughs)
0: melanin is not
1: some kind of teflon thing that's making it to where i will never ingest anti-blackness right right but i love the fact that because i can think about my thinking and because i can think about the discourses and practices with which i am bombarded then i can make a decision about being deliberate about noticing that which i am taking as natural truth and making a practice of questioning it this is the last thing i'll say you know Anyone who knows me knows that I'm constantly saying, whatever you practice, you'll get better at. And it literally doesn't matter if what you're practicing is a good thing or a bad thing, a productive thing or a destructive thing. Whatever you practice, you will get better at. So I like to think about my unlearning of some of these things that are destructive is something I simply have to practice. So I don't need to beat myself up because I haven't perfected it. No, 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 you're just practicing. So let's just keep practicing. So all of that's to say that yes, it is designed to be a distraction from us thinking for ourselves because everything in the society benefits when we simply accept as natural and right, um, white supremacy, sexism, heterosexism, trans antagonism, all of those things When we accept it as natural and right, I mean, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, Omar, right? If we accept it as natural and right, then we never are able to step back and think for ourselves and say, why am I so constantly bombarded with that message? If it's about what's natural and right, why would I have to be bombarded with it every day of my life since i come out of the womb? So, yeah, that's how I would answer that. Wow.
0: And... And again, we're talking about critical thinking and the art of thinking differently because, as I've mentioned earlier, um, one of the things I do like to do on this podcast is invite listeners to think differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And what you're laying out involves a lot of that, the unlearning, the unpacking, the interpretation, the active and very, um, very active and rigorous thinking as you described it, because those things are very important. Our minds have to be constantly engaged in the practice of critical thinking and rigorously thinking. And it's very interesting to me, this is another cultural thing that I would like to throw out for the purposes of our conversation. Often, and and I rail against this, and I think maybe some of the listeners might as well, we are told Some of us are told, particularly women are told this, especially, I believe, you're overthinking. You're thinking too much. You're overthinking. And I don't ever (laughs) (laughs) subscribe. I honestly don't ever subscribe Mm -hmm. to that. I don't believe there's ever such a thing. I think as human beings, we use about 3% of our brains. Uh, Caritha perhaps between three and eight percent of our brains so when there's this repeated thing oh we're overthinking it and again this message is particularly targeted at women because eventually what I'd love us to segue to in a few moments is the conversation about men and toxic masculinity because all of these things to me are very much intertwined I've heard the phrase uh as a man I think so is he acteth." I've heard that phrase forever But the point I'm trying to get to at this moment is is that when you have this engagement of rigorous thinking going on and this overthinking we're told about, that seems to me to be a reinforcement of discouraging you from thinking. I don't know. What's your take on all of that with this message that gets thrown particularly at women, often by men, too, um, throwing it at women? Oh, you're thinking. And some women internalize this, too, I think. You're thinking too much. You're overthinking it. What What's your take on all of that, Karetha?
1: Oh, you are so good. These are such crucial questions. The first thing I would say is, sometimes when I describe thinking and thinking about our thinking, people take that to be laborious. Like, who has time and energy for all that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sometimes that's the knee-jerk reaction. And part of what I would say to that is, What we need to recognize is, again, whatever you practice, you will get better at. So if it sounds laborious, it's only because you haven't been practicing it. Once it becomes how you move in the world, it's just how you move in the world. But the other thing I would say is exactly in line with what you've laid out which is that especially in American culture, and I might even say Western culture more broadly, because, but because I'm in the United States and have lived my whole life here, I'll just focus there on exactly what I know. American culture is very invested in um, intellectual laziness. And it makes sense about why American culture would be invested in this, right? Because if you have citizens who are not inclined to think rigorously, then it becomes a lot easier to simply have them ingest the value systems that keep your machinery running. And so racism, sexism, all of those isms that as long as they're not questioned, everything that's put in place, all of these injustices get to just run smoothly. And again, Omar, we're not in a culture that isn't built on inequity and violence. That is precisely what American culture is built on. So when you have done something that is so foul as to operate and build entire systems on the belief that you deserve to be on top and these people are not even human and should be on bottom, when that is the fiction on which you have built your entire nation, then you don't want anybody questioning anything. The other thing I'll say that the way that you laid it out to me reminds me of is, you know, right now I'm teaching a class that is basically the gateway into the English major. And I've told my students that I am teaching this class in a way that helps them to understand why I became an English major myself and fell in love with the discipline. And the bottom line of why I fell in love was that it gave me the tools to think and also think about my thinking. And so, because that is the habit that I have, it doesn't seem like some kind of extra thing that I'm doing. It's simply the way that I wanna move in the world because what I believe more than anything, Omar, is that you cannot really have a sense of freedom or agency. I'll I'll call it agency. You can't really shape your own life if you don't have any awareness of what's driving you. And we're in a culture that because it discourages you from thinking about your thinking, it encourages you to never actually know what's driving you. So you have these strong emotions of reaction To seeing, I don't know, two women kiss each other and you're enraged, but you don't have any way of understanding why you're enraged. To my mind, that is not a life of agency because you couldn't you couldn't um, write your own path, even if you wanted to, because you've never even thought about. Do I like the way that I'm responding to that? Do I like the reasons why that gets my (laughs) tackles up? Do I even like those reasons? The other way I'll put it is this. It's another example that I always give my students. You know, I don't think you can write a life on purpose if you don't have the power to recognize why it is that you think that monogamy is the be all end all and that marriage is the be all end all. Like, If you don't even have the power to question, do I like my reasons for why I have marriage on a pedestal? If you don't have the power to question that, I don't believe you can have real agency, Omar. I don't think you can write your life story on purpose. All you can do is react to the feelings you have about who is worthy of respect and who's not. All you can do is react to that and then try to fit yourself into the box of the narrow idea you have of what would make you worthy. So
0: the question, I think, uh, as we talk here in the second portion of our conversation is to ask you about academia and uh, the challenges perhaps that you have encountered or the kinds of things that deal with curricula that kind of reinforce the same issues that contribute to the blockage and all the, you know, the things that we must unlearn. Can you talk a bit about uh, your experiences, if you'd like to, or about the challenges of dealing with that in a very rigorously structured thing called academia in the United States or in the Western Western world?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's so many dynamics to this. I guess the place to begin is to recognize that education um, is part of the structure or the system that creates docile citizens. If you don't recognize that that is the function of education, especially in an unjust society, then you may be deceived into thinking that education is simply designed to lift people up that education is simply designed to liberate, that it is the path to something better. It is not automatically the path to something better, especially in the United States. Education is one of the most important tools for making sure that workers are given the kind of rule-following ethos that will best serve the elite. So that's the first place to start, right? If you understand that, then it makes it even more important to recognize power dynamics, even within education. So I would say that there's so many, again, there's so many directions I could go with this, Omar, because I am steeped in one of the most important systems for making people um, docile. And so on the one hand, I could simply contribute to that. On the other hand, I could struggle to make it a space where people can gain from it what i believe i gain from it and so that's what i do which is of course the heavier lift um and you're working against everything because it's not as if education was made by people who were any less racist less sexist less heterosexist less you know trans antagonistic like the people who created our educational systems love power dynamics as much as anybody else. So one of the things that I will say to you is that because I've been a professor for 18 years, (laughs) a long time, one of the things that I know for sure is that some of the pain that I see in academia, especially because I mentor so many scholars of color and students of color. Part of the pain I see is that they think academia should have been a little less awful. Every other arena, I expect to be brutally racist, but I thought it would be different in academia. I mean, I'm dealing with people who have PhDs Omar, shouldn't they be more enlightened? (laughs) No, not automatically. And so I I think that part of what has been important for me in my journey is making sure that the same critical thinking that I'm encouraging is a critical thinking that I'm willing to put onto myself and my own profession. Nothing is off the table. If we're going to be critical thinkers, we need to think about the profession we're in, too. We need to think about the, the environment we're creating in the classroom, too. We need to think about the environment in that faculty meeting, like the discourses and practices that shape those spaces need to be thought about critically, just like the text of Shakespeare. So I know that you're being intellectually lazy as my colleague. If you can bring your A game of intellectual rigor to Shakespeare, but you can't bring that same rigor to how when you look around, you're affirmed everywhere you look and you think that it's because you're just extra smart. No, maybe it's because you're a white man and you've been told that you're extra smart and given a million chances, even when you show you're not extra smart. So to my mind, that is how you turn the critical thinking onto yourself and your profession, too. You don't turn it off just because it's your own life experience. So to me, that is what it has meant to be in academia, is that the same skills that I learned, I turn onto my environment Mm, mm. and equip other people to do the same. And you see that
0: to me is also the power of being and I'm I'm not trying to label you because labels can be well there's a a lot of things about labels that are very problematic but the notion of an activist educator someone who's educating but is also as you are very activated and stimulating thinking and conceptualizing thinking and in a way, intellectualizing it, and that's not as a put down that's meant really as a sincere appraisal and i you know I'm not trying to appraise, but as a sincere uh, observation of some of the things mm-hmm. that you do, kartha is that you stimulate people to really tune into a very important part of who they are as people, the ability to think to reason that separates mm-hmm. us from other parts of species out here on, in, on the planet, the animal kingdom that you referred to earlier. So mm-hmm. that it's so important because there are people who get into academia who just put their heads down and they don't look around themselves. And then there are people such as yourself who have a larger, a more profound mission and purpose in really trying to uplift people, not just educate them, but like uplift them through what you do. So I just, I'm really thankful for that. And I didn't know if you wanted to speak on that at all.
1: Absolutely. Because the first thing I'll say, Omar, is that, you know, you were saying that labels can be a problem. What I want to acknowledge is that labeling things is a human activity. Our brains want the comfort of knowing, how can I place this thing? And so what I encourage people to do is just to be aware of the function of labels, that it's human to want to label things, but we just want to think critically about them. So there's nothing inherently good or bad about a label. It's what you do with it. So that's the first thing that you have me thinking about. But the other thing that I want to make crystal clear And and I take it as a compliment what you've laid out there because it's absolutely what I see as my mission. And I guess what I want to say about why it's my mission is this. It is part of the human experience that we will crave meaning. We crave meaning. And so we're going to make meaning, Omar. So when you say that I am wanting to not just educate, but empower, that is part of where that comes from. Because I understand that as human beings, we're always going to make some meaning. And so I just want us to have the tools to make that meaning on purpose, right? So instead of making my meaning by saying, okay, well, I was taught from the very beginning, that to be a respectable respectable woman means X, Y, and Z. So let me follow these rules so that I can have the good woman label and the life that supposedly I'm supposed to have. Because you know, this culture tells me that if I behave in certain ways, then I will be rewarded. But it's an unjust country. So over and over again, I will follow every rule and still not get the reward, especially as a black person, regardless of gender, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, well, what I feel is important is I need us to know that we're always going to make some kind of meaning. So how about we make that meaning on purpose? And that, to my mind, is what, it, what we get when we understand that I'm going to have all these thoughts. I'm going to think constantly, no matter what because I'm going to constantly think, it will behoove me to think on purpose and to be aware of what I'm thinking. And so that is what you kind of laid out when you say that I'm I'm interested in not just education, but empowerment, because that's where the power comes from. We're human, we're going to make meaning, we're going to have thoughts. So how about we empower ourselves to be aware of those activities, so that we can check and see, do I like my reasons for these things do i like my uh approach my habit how i think about this has become a habit do i like that habit or do i want to reevaluate and that's something that as humans we also have the power to do so yeah you've that's exactly what i'm invested in you're so right
0: oh i appreciate uh, what you've said thank you and, and the thing i wanted to add too um as a question for you before we do talk about a few other things here in conjunction with this topic do you think that labels are ever born out of fear because I have this theory (laughs) that particularly white culture dominant white male society and culture puts labels on people and things out of fear and you talked about how it's a human activity that all of us do this to kind of make sense of things but I think that in a culture like this one that's so very oppressive
1: Mm-hmm. There's this
0: need to otherize, And so oh, yeah. let me just put this person in this box and those people over there in that box and all of that kind of thing. And I, I a lot of that to me is about fear as well as control. But fear, Um, I, w- I would like for you to, if you don't mind, talk a bit about that, what your um feelings and thoughts are about mm-hmm. that, about fear and labels and whether the labels are often created out of fear of ordering the world around us.
1: These are such good questions. I mean, this is the whole semester, really, because, (laughs) okay, but I'm going to have to, okay. There's no question that the labeling we see in a fundamentally violent and violently unjust culture like American culture, the labeling we see in that kind of culture is very often um, about... Othering, as you put it, and keeping certain people in their proper place. There's no question about that. So when I say that labels aren't inherently good or bad, I'm saying that all human activity can be used to give life or to destroy life. And what I want us to be aware of is that the tendency in American culture is a very destructive, violent tendency. Because, like I said, this culture has been built on what are the best ways that I can um, deny that this human being is my equal? How do I keep them in their proper place? while I'm on top, whether I deserve to be or not. So I make a country that says that abiding by certain rules should get you rewards. But I've ensured that I get rewards even when I don't follow those rules. And these people that I call Black, even when they follow the rules, they don't get the rewards. That is literally the culture I've made. So because that's the culture I've made and I've got the power to keep replicating that, then you're exactly right that labels very often in this culture are functioning in a really hostile way. Now, the only reason I don't wholeheartedly agree with you that it comes from fear is because I think it's much more rooted in violence and entitlement and license than it's rooted in fear. So what do I mean by that? I'm a firm believer that if you really understand how power works, what you will recognize is that um, it is when people in marginalized groups succeed that they face the most opposition. I learned this, of course, by writing my first book, Living with Lynching. You were not targeted by the mob because you were an actual criminal. (laughs) You were targeted by the mob because you were successful in some way and people considering themselves white wanted to keep you or put you back in your proper place and terrorize your entire community while they did it. So you wanted to get a decent uh, price for your crop or for your labor. You wanted to protect your wife or daughter from sexual assault, sexual harassment. Um, You wanted to vote as a citizen would. It was that you were successful in some way that this culture wanted to put you back in your proper place. So that's the only reason I don't put it along the lines of fear so much as I put it along the lines of no, 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 no. This is just a culture that has said straight white men should be licensed whether they deserve to be or not according to the own standards they made. And that license means that they're going to constantly use horrifying labels of everybody else so that no matter how good those other people are, according to the standards they say they respect, they can still brutalize them. And no, how, no matter how little the person who's a straight white man measures up, he can still be licensed. So that's the reason I don't attribute it to fear is because I see it as simply arrogant license. I'll put it one more way. I think about Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? The the brutalization of this, what we call Black Wall Street. Right. And the fact that people will claim that it is, you know, um, having white children and other white citizens feel bad about the history. That is the reason why they're so opposed to the history being taught. I don't believe that. I don't believe there's any shame about it. It's the shamelessness for me, Omar. Right. <laughs> it's the shamelessness. Because what I want us to think about is how perverse of a flex is it to say we will not only do this violence, but then we'll also act like we didn't do it and dare you to say we did it. That's a perverse flex. Who gonna check me, boo? So I don't think it's about shame. I think it's about shamelessness. I think it's about a license to not only do the violence, but then act like you didn't, and then gaslight the whole nation while you act like you didn't. That is license. That's not shame.
0: I appreciate that you've elucidated it the way that you have, um, because of, and I should have probably modified what I asked in the what I said in the first place from fear to more and I think I did say control but much more about dominance and reinforcing the culture Um, that's what I should have added there what I'm trying to get at now is men or women but particularly men and feelings as we then segue over into how we as men how men, any man listening, any male person listening can try to liberate oneself from toxic masculinity. So feelings and processing them. And as you've talked about this engagement of thinking about our feelings in a culture like this so that we can understand why some of us have this very visceral response to two men kissing or two women kissing.
1: Yeah, you know, What comes to mind immediately is that American culture is based on so many lies. Mm. But one of the lies is that being intellectual is somehow separate from being emotional. Mm. That if I'm a real intellect, I will be, you know, dispassionate. I will be quote unquote objective. All of that is rooted in lies uh, that we might trace back to enlightenment that try to sell people on the idea that being intellectual is the opposite of being emotional. And so that is why, in a sexist culture, women are considered emotional and men are considered, you know, dispassionate, logical. And so we're taught to believe that logic is opposed to emotion. So part of what you have me thinking about, Omar, is the way that, in the same way that I would say that we can't be critical thinkers if we're not willing to think about power dynamics, I would say we can't be critical thinkers if we're not willing to think about our own embodiment And that embodiment includes emotion. To be human, having all of this integrated means that my feelings are not divorced from my thoughts. So you have me thinking about, for example, how intellectually lazy I believe it is for People that I've heard over the years, because again, I've been a professor 18 years, right? So part of what my life experience has included is my willingness to do professional development workshops for professors, administrators, other people over the years. And one of the things that I know, because I do this with professors in every arena, is that there's a lot of investment in intellectuals pretending that their embodiment doesn't matter. So um, a white male professor wanting to believe that his being a straight white man in the classroom has nothing to do with his intellect and his teaching. But in fact, it does and the fact that it does is part of what it would take for him to be intellectually rigorous so for example if he were really intellectually rigorous he wouldn't think that it was fine for him to say the n-word in his classroom and then tell me about it right but that's happened in my career a million times because we live in a society where people with privilege are encouraged to think that their privileges have nothing to do with their intellect. So I can pretend that my embodiment has nothing to do with it, right? You mentioned ableism earlier. That's been one of the things that I've gotten really good about trying to think about and reflect on that. Okay, Karitha, one of the criteria that you were able to fulfill is that you are normatively able, both physically and cognitively. None of the job descriptions for the jobs you applied for included that, but that was actually the main thing that you fulfilled that gave you a leg up. So to my mind, we can't be critical thinkers and rigorous intellectuals if we want to ignore our embodiment. And part of our embodiment is emotion. So that's the other thing I would say, like what you brought up has made me think about the way that for me, critical thinking involves power dynamics, but it also involves being willing to think about your own embodiment because the way that we are embodied will determine the experiences we have in a society, especially one that is built on injustice. So when I walk into a room and I am being read as a black woman, that will affect the experiences I have. So how ridiculous would it be for me to think that those experiences that I have over and over again, that my white male colleague doesn't have, doesn't affect how I think about things and how I do my scholarship. Of course it does, but by the same token, the fact that I walk into the room and people assume that I'm cisgender is also shaping the experiences I'm having. And that will also shape the kind of analysis that I can bring to bear. So to my mind, that is why it's important to think of ourselves as comp- complete human beings. And our embodiment includes our emotion.
0: And, um, you know, again, again, um, dear listener, I I do hope that you're taking note, I'm sure you are, of what Caritha Mitchell is telling us. Um, And I do appreciate what you're saying, uh, Caritha, thoroughly. Um, And uh, I do believe the listeners uh, would do so as well. Um, This whole idea of embodiment is so profound to me because you had said earlier that we can practice things and we'll get better at those things, whatever they are, positive, negative, whatever. And one (laughs) of the things that... Just from my own uh, personal uh, thing, what I tend to do, what I, a lot of times I do, when I speak about people, I often, I do say he, she, or they. I incorporate that in daily life. Um, mm-hmm. When, for example, on social media, these are small things, but these are things that I think are important. Um, on social media, when you might have a photograph that you're posting on a various form of social media, and then there's the ALT, the alt function for people who perhaps uh, visually impaired in some way, uh, or whatever that uh, disability may be, I will type in a description pretty not every single time, but almost every time on the, mm-hmm. the platforms that allow it. And I think those are small things, but those those small things are also big things in how we reframe how we think and also focus on the embodiment that you've just explained.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can't claim that I have those really good habits, but I love what you've said that it seems like a small thing, but it's an important thing. It's absolutely important because as we've been talking about, whatever is most commonly said and done will be the culture that we're in. So we do affect culture by what we do and say. And so it's never minor. It actually makes room in the spaces that you enter. Um, and so it's never minor. Those words and deeds all make a difference.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to take one more break and then we're going to talk about, um, Liberation from toxic masculinity. And there's one other thing I'd like to ask you about. Of course, your work. I mean, we have to talk Uh, a bit about your books. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to have you on here and I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. (laughs) That's coming up right after this. How do you define toxic masculinity?
1: Interesting. So toxic masculine masculinity is not a term I use much at all. It's not a term I use much, but I do feel like I know what it means, which is basically that someone has ingested, internalized the Western and especially American conception of masculinity. To the extent that they valorize, you know, being tough, they valorize kind of the cowboy or the dominant, you know, um, boxer, I mean, the football, like all of the things that we put on a pedestal in American culture that men should be hard and dominating. And toxic masculinity comes then from internalizing that, putting on um, a higher plane, that kind of masculinity. And when you internalize it and don't question it, then the violence that's done in its name is justified automatically. One of the things that comes to mind as an example is the way that we're all bombarded with movies that give us a, you know, tough masculine hero who is going through killing a whole bunch of people, mutilating a whole bunch of people, and we find that he's driven by protecting some little girl or he's driven by protecting his wife or revenging, you know, something that happened to his family. So that is a perfect example of how we are socialized to think about violence as totally justified when it comes in the right package. And masculinity is that right package. So to me, that's what toxic masculinity what people are usually referring to when they say it is that you haven't questioned what this culture has told you is a real man, a real tough man that you should have on a pedestal.
0: And in in accordance with what you're saying, Caritha, in some ways, and I've had a rethink about this, um, in my way of thinking about it, in a very real sense, toxic masculinity isn't really masculinity at all. It's, as you've talked about, it's violence. It's about a cultural appraisal of violence, a cultural reinforcement of it in the body of usually a white, straight, cisgendered male. And yeah. so it's not, to me, and I and I and I certainly uh, take your point and agree. I think it, those things that you've described, I think the listeners would readily agree with it also. That, that is exactly how this culture orders a certain view of masculinity, but in some senses it's a re- I think as you've said earlier as well, it's a reinforcement of power dynamic. It's a mm-hmm. reiteration of that, a reframing and a re-emphasizing of something that's not even masculinity, it's power. It's you know, and, and that and and you did stipulate that you do do not really define tosk you don't think of that term at all as a term that you would use because I think it does actually come to think of it, and I'm thinking about this now as I'm talking about it, that term does come with its own sense of pitfalls perhaps, or it becomes thrown out there as, lest I dare trivialise it, because I'm not trying to, a buzzword that people throw out. And sometimes perhaps when we throw that word or those two words out there, we don't really think about it and what it means and how we're defining it. Um,
1: Well, you know... I see it as one of those terms that has a great use in terms of the fact that, like I said, we're meant to to not even question that storyline. I did all this death and destruction, but I'm totally justified because look at this cute little girl that I'm hugging at the end. So we're not even supposed to notice that that's what we're being sold as a toxic um model of masculinity so to give a term like toxic masculinity at least gives us some room to maybe notice that we're being some sold something very specific that is actually destructive so i think again it's not a term that i use all the time but i think that it has a use but like anything in our language it can be you know used in a way that is useful and helps us or that doesn't help us. And usually the difference between those two has a lot to do with the specific context, right? And so I don't ever think that it's automatically a good or bad term. I just think that it's another tool we can use and we just want to use our tools as deliberately as we can. Mm -hmm. But I take your point too, Omar, that It's not about masculinity. It's about reinforcing domination. That's an important thing for us to notice. Because again, we're encouraged not to notice how these things are working on us. So maybe we could step back and we could say, well, what is the function of having a sense or a concept of masculinity? What is the function of having a concept of femininity? do those serve, right? And we could unpack that and be here all day, but the first thing I'll say is, it serves to reinforce the idea that human life comes in two opposite forms. And the opposite is part of what's important. You need opposites when you wanna create a society where you always know who's supposed to be on bottom and who's supposed to be on top opposites are really important for that right so if I say intellectual versus emotional those opposites are really important because it lets me know who should be on bottom and who should be on top so that's one of the ways that I would say that your point is so well taken about thinking about masculinity as a tool of domination because that's why we are so invested in having labels as you to your point earlier right The human brain wants to categorize and we're in a society that wants to categorize so that it can make a hierarchy. Mm. (laughs) And so in that kind of society, this is what you're going to constantly get. I need to be able to make masculine and feminine opposites. I need to be able to have a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. I need to be able to know how I should treat you. Am I going to show you some respect or am I going to hit on you? I need to know, <laughs> right? So that's the reason why you need these opposites so that you can always have a hierarchy and that can determine how you're going to treat this human being. I can't just be a human being because if I'm just a human being, I don't really know automatically if I'm supposed to hit on you or not, right? Like, I mean, it's literally that. It's literally, it's literally that kind of thing, wow. but we don't have all day to t- unpack Whoa. all that, but
0: Oh, gosh, we need a sequel.
1: <laughs> we need a sequel. You know? But I mean, okay, this is the last thing I'll say about that. The reason I even offer examples like that is because that gives you some sense, for example, of why cisgender people versus versus trans people. Like, why would that be such an issue if we didn't live in a culture that decided the rights you should have if you're considered a woman versus the rights you should have if you're considered a man. We wouldn't even need such rigid ideas about whether you are a man or a woman if we didn't want to put you in your proper place. But we have a society that wants to say men should be leaders even if they don't show any leadership skills. Men should have power even if they don't deserve to have power. Men should, like, that's the society we're in. So, because we're in that, we're invested in people fitting in one box or the other. If we weren't so invested in that, then gender non conforming would be much more prevalent. Like, why wouldn't, like, why would you need to put me in a box? Right. Well, you need the box because you want to put me in my proper place. Mm.
0: Absolutely. And you know, that's the thing that I was just thinking about as you were laying that out and and so clearly again, as you always do. uh, You know, one of the things I have to say, and dear listener, please indulge me here. Um, I, I just have to say this, the way that you're talking about these things, the incisiveness of your thinking about these things it, actually, it helps me, too, to even think even more deeply about these things. And I like to think that I'm a fairly deep thinker.
1: <laughs> you absolutely are. These questions are high stakes questions. I mean, you're going to the core. You're going to the core of a lot of what is driving our culture.
0: And, 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 and as you've just pointed out, I, I just think, and I thank you, the thing that I, I just really want to get to is nuance, because you you really helped me to think about that, and i I think no doubt the listeners thinking about what you are saying and what we are conversing about here um, about nuance because you talked about we wouldn 't need this culture of demonizing trans persons or anything of that sort if you know if these desire to just put people in their box and their place um, didn 't mm-hmm. facilitate or exist in the first place. And Mm -hmm. the thing is, with nuance, when there's grey area, this society and many others in the Western world gets extremely uncomfortable.
1: Because as you
0: point out, Caritha, we've been thrown these messages that it's either this or that, black or white. Da-da, 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 very rigid. And so when there's this grey area, there's all this discomfort and this violence in reaction to it too. And I think that's some of the things that you've been talking about. I don't know if you wanted to... um, talk about any of that, by the way.
1: No, I think you've put it perfectly. That is the reason why we are discouraged from thinking more deeply is because I'd much rather just this or that end of story. And I guess the only thing that's important to notice about that is the habit of this or that mostly serves to keep certain people in their proper place. That is the main purpose it serves. And so to your point earlier, If domination is really what this is about, then that lets you know why this or that is so important because this or that makes domination clear. Who should have dominant positions and who shouldn't. Domination is the whole reason why this or that is preferred especially in the kind of society we're in. That always is creating inequity and hierarchy.
0: And we're seeing an intersection of the way that capitalism does what it does too. See that's oh, yeah. something we've not talked about again. We we should have a sequel or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that is another thing, and you see how Republican politicians fundraise off of things like, oh, trans oh, yeah. people are a danger to us. Oh my God, they're taking over absolutely. your bathroom. Oh my God, and yep, these folks exactly. are making billions fundraising oh, yeah. off of stuff, hateful stuff
1: like that. You know, absolutely. Good. Ding, ding, ding. You're exactly right.
0: Now, can you talk about the book that you are presently working on that's coming out in June, which I can't wait to read? I've talked about the title, but you can uh, tell the view, the listeners about the, the title and what you're doing with the book so far.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Um So it is an edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, as you said, written by Harriet Jacobs. Um, she is the first formally enslaved African-American woman who wrote a book-length account of her life. So it was called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, came out in 1861. So my edition will come out in June, as you said, and my edition I'm really proud of because what I've done is give the reader a really thorough introduction um for better or worse the introduction is 53 pages (laughs) Um, a really thorough introduction and then a chronology of harriet jacobs life and times um and then a reproduction of the book that she originally wrote but i give you footnotes so that anything she mentions that i think modern readers wouldn't know at the tip of their mind i give you a footnote so that you know exactly where you are and then after the reproduction of the text with the footnotes i have six appendices With historical documents that help you understand all the issues that were raised by the narrative that you just read, as well as her life after she published that narrative. So I have an appendix, for example, there are six appendices, but just to take one example, an appendix about the composition and um, publication and reception of incidents at the time. So I have letters that let you see her struggle to write the book as she wrote to friends about her struggle in writing and then primary documents that show you how she got the contract to publish the book and then all kinds of other things that happened once the book came out. So that is the kind of edition it is. So it is Harriet Jacobs text primarily, but the reason it's an edition with my name on it is because I've done all of that contextual work. And I know that you love context and, and, value context, and that is exactly what drove me to do this edition. What I'll the other thing I want to say about that is Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is a really um monumental uh narrative. It's considered a slave narrative, of course. Um 1845 Frederick Douglass's um narrative written by himself is kind of the standard bearer for the genre. When Harriet Jacobs publishes Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl in 1861, What we see is the difference between a Black man telling his story, which involves witnessing the sexual vulnerability of Black women, the difference between that witnessing versus the actual Black woman who was sexually vulnerable. And so that's one of the reasons why when Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is published, it changes the game because it is a Black woman telling from her own account what it meant to have the nation treat her sexual violation as a necessary non event on which the nation will be built. And because it's such an important text, I know that I have colleagues in history, in sociology, and in all kinds of fields who teach the text, but most of the editions of it have a bare bones introduction and that's it. Mm. And I just think it's too important in terms of what Black women go through in enslavement to have um, so many readers encounter it without the context that I give in that introduction with those appendices with those footnotes with that chronology
0: oh wow you know it's so valued i mean i, I can't wait to read this book thank you <laughs> oh my god yeah
1: i'm really proud of it
0: i'm really proud of it oh my goodness dear listener um please go and get this book when it comes out do you know the exact date in june by the way karetha that it's going to be public is going to be out
1: Actually the official publication date is June 15th, but it is available for pre-order right now. When you go to broadviewpress.com, I think that's the, (laughs) I should look it up. But um, Broadview Press is the press that will publish it. And when you go to their information page about my editions, it will have a link to pre-order through bookshop.org. So that link is already there and and ready to be used, if I'm not mistaken. Because I published a piece about Harriet Jacobs on March 7th, 2023, in the Washington Post. And I know for sure that that pre-order button was ready by the time that Washington Post piece came out. Excellent.
0: And the thing is, I I tell you, I'm going to put this information out on my social media Um, and uh, certainly put it in the liner notes for this particular episode that we had our conversation on. Most welcome. And I would, to that end, ask you about your social media. If you want to tell the listeners about that, your website, anything else that um, in terms of getting in contact with you, um, the floor is yours as always. So um, please tell us all about all of that, please.
1: Absolutely. Well, again, this has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Omar. Um, so, uh, I am Karitha Mitchell. I use she, her pronouns. Karitha is spelled K-O-R-I-T-H-A. I always say it sounds like Aretha, but it's not spelled that way. Oh <laughs> um, and so my website is karethamitchell.com and on social media, I'm at Prof Corey, P-R-O-F-K-O-R-I. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter. I am on Instagram begrudgingly, but I'm mostly on Twitter. So that's the easiest way for people to find me. Um, and of course, Karithamitchell.com. You can find me and contact me there too. Um, so yeah, I'm really easy to find.
0: Dear listener, you have been in the company of the one, the only Professor Caritha Mitchell. It is such an honor to have her here today. Caritha, it's been so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for uh, the conversation and what you've been doing. It's just so beautiful. And again, I respect you profoundly, as does this audience. And we are all uh, the better for having you on this episode and talking about the great things and the great work that you continue to do. Thank you so very much, Caritha. Thank you. you. Dear listener, I do hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Caritha Mitchell of Ohio State University. And as I said, we spoke for almost two hours and you have been listening to roughly an hour and 10 minutes or thereabouts. And again, I want to say a special thank you to Professor Caritha Mitchell. Follow yours truly on Twitter at Popcorn R-E-E-L. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, the Politocrat Daily Podcast YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at sign ThePolitocrat, P-O-D. Of course, there's the online store, which is at the following web address, the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Purchase merchandise that's designed by yours truly at that particular web address. The online store is up and running. And of course, there will be more items added during the course of the next few weeks and months. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.